All right, well, good evening. If you ever see me speaking somewhere, inevitably I will whisper something to somebody when I walk up front. What I'm asking them is what time we end at. Because wherever I go, I always forget, and then I, <laughs> I get up and I think, I sort of they didn't look and pay attention. So then you don't get lost as you're speaking. Other people do. I don't have the fancy watch. You know, I don't have this down yet. All right, well, we're in the, we're in the, uh, the New Testament epistle to James, or from James, not to James, why am I saying to James, from James to the, the, the Christians scattered abroad. And this morning we started five areas of self-deception found in James, okay? Um, I said you could also title this, James talks about your talk, your claims to faith. James discusses this um, in a number of different areas. So let me just review with you briefly what we said, and I'd like to also give some tools to you, stuff that you could, you could sort of use when you go home uh, on the second point. The first point that we pointed out this, this, this morning um, was really a deception about uh, the nature of our faith, and I was really getting this morning at this problem that many people are worried about, which, which is people who have picked up Christian culture they know how to say the right things, but they've never actually been, if we could use an old term, converted. They've not actually come to a place where they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, okay? Uh, you could be a person like Nicodemus and be a religious theologian and not have eternal life, right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, what? How can you be a teacher in Israel and not know these things? Um, people have said, and I'm sort of going off of old memories, so you might want to check me on this. I've heard people say, I've read about Billy Graham crusades, and Billy Graham might have said this himself, that sometimes he doubted the number of people who were genuinely born again um, at, at, his, at many of his rallies. It, there's nothing, that's not a slight against, against Billy Graham. The Lord used him mightily uh, to preach the gospel. He, he would have no control over what people were thinking and saying as they came up. Um, and so a lot of people worry, is, is it, it, how many people are there in the churches uh, that we, we go to or that we attend or that we know about uh, that are in the pews, so to speak? You actually have pews here, so that makes it very apropos. Uh, they're in the pews that are sort of going along with the crowd, maybe not even realizing it, right? Have you ever met anybody? You're sharing the gospel with them. You ask them, was there ever a time in your life where you realized your need for a Savior you trusted Christ as your Savior. You, know, you started to get in the gospel with them, and they said, well, I sing in the choir at my church. Have you ever had a, 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 an experience like that? Well, my, my dad was a pastor. And immediately you realize there's what? There's a disconnect. They don't really um, understand what you're getting at when you get at the gospel. right? They think that you're asking them if they live a good Christian life. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus... What, what, do you, what do you have to be? You need to be born from above. You need to be born again. Okay? Um, salvation is not just picking up a cultural way of life. And so in the, the, the community that James was writing to, these, these Jewish Christians scattered abroad, there were people that he was concerned about. I mentioned this morning that there were, in the Epistle to Hebrews, people that had undergone persecution, and they basically abandoned the faith. And so the first area of deception is perhaps being deceived about the, the reality of our faith, and I mentioned that how, how trials can actually expose 
the quality or the existence of our faith. That was one point. Um, a second point was that we can be um, deceived when it comes to whether we're really obeying the word of God. It's just a simple point. There's, there's not a need to belabor it. Uh, if you want to look in chapter 1, at verse number 25, James chapter 1, verse number 25. We read there, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man or this woman will be blessed in what he does. I hope you don't mind me including all the sisters when I, when I read it. This man, oftentimes in the New Testament, words like anthropos or something like that, it's just, it's just this person, right? These people are, this is the kind of person that will be blessed. You don't want to be deceived in your own life just giving yourself a free pass. Well, the Lord's pleased with me. The Lord's blessing me. I come to meetings, these kind of things. James is like, don't be deceived, people. Are you just hearing messages? Are your bookshelves Mine are. Are your bookshelves lined with conference binders? Or, I don't have conference binders. You know, I got binders from classes and commentaries and, and all kinds of stuff, but your life is not characterized by obedience. What good is it, right? What good is all kinds of information? Actually, it would probably be better if you had less information than have more information and to not be, sort of not be living it out. So that's the second area of deception. Uh, self-deception, and that's where we actually see the word in chapter, uh, verse 22. Don't delude yourself. Don't, don't trick yourself. Uh, before I go on, I wanted to give you a couple suggestions based on verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. What kind of tools are you using when you study the scriptures? Uh, we live in a society, and this is part of a challenge and part of a blessing, that's basically bursting at the seams with, with tools and books and information. Um, but I'm going to suggest to you just a couple things that you might use as tools. Uh, and, 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 you know, the elders might be just getting nervous, you know. What is this guy going to suggest from the pulpit here? You always got to worry about suggestions people make. Um, but I've spent most of my life in, in New Testament pattern churches like this, so I think I can safely... Um, suggest things that the believers would appreciate. Um, these are resources that you could get for free online if you have internet um, access, which is almost everybody today, if you have the internet on your computer, as folks used to say. Um, nobody got that. Uh, I used to work in IT, and it would, be, it, it would be cute to hear people say that, that you have the internet, this entire massive worldwide network system on your computer. But let me give you a couple of tools that you can use. Um, write down this. I'm going to give you three, three websites, three or four of them. One of them is a website um, that's a very simple-to-use tool. You could even use it if you are sharing the gospel or talking with someone that's got questions. Uh, and and it's, it, the website is gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. Now, they claim to have answered something like 100,000-something questions. Um, the site's getting used a lot, so it's getting more and more complicated. But it used to be just a good old site of, of basic questions. I haven't yet run across anything on that site that I don't think would be appreciated and in line with the doctrine at the assemblies that, that I fellowship with and, t and teach among. One of the benefits of this tool is that it gives a one-page answer. It doesn't get long-winded. Questions about who's the angel of the Lord, what's a theophany, 
What's the rapture? What's Calvinism? It just kind of gets into all these questions, but it only gives you one page, right? And so if you're interacting with somebody and they might have questions, you might say, hey, between now and the next time we meet, take a look at gotquestions.org. You can look at it. It gives you some basic Bible verses, and, and um, it's a good place to go for a quick, quick rundown on something. A set of Bible commentaries that are full-orbed, pretty deep, and absolutely free uh, can be found at a site called Sonic Light. It's a very weird domain name. It was, <laughs> these, are, these are written by um, Dr. John Constable, who taught at Dallas Seminary for years. And I greatly respect the fact that he wrote all of these commentaries that he could have sold, and he's just given them away for free for years. They're all in PDF, so you can download them and make use of them. Uh, and, and, and John will take you through all kinds of resources. He's a dispensational writer. He's pre-trib. Uh, and many, of, um, many people have benefited from his tools. Absolutely free for you to use as you study the scriptures. Um, a third resource that you might want to, to take a look at, if you have an appreciation for early assembly writers, the early brethren, people like, um, obviously, Darby, Kelly, um, C.H. McIntosh, there'll be other names you might recognize, C.A. Coates, um, J.G. Bellad, other, you, know, you might recognize some of them or not. Uh, write down um, STEM Publishing, S-T-E-M Publishing, and I think it's .org or .com. They have digitized almost all of the early assembly writers. And you can get access to, somebody's thinking, wow, I just paid for all of Darby's works. or something. I don't know. I don't even know if they print them anymore. But uh, you can access all of this online um, through, your, through your cell phone. Why would you go there? A lot of the early assembly writers were very devotional. right? They, they, they point your attention to Christ. They see Christ in all the scriptures. They were, they were great students of the word. STEM publishing. Uh, so there are three tools that you can use in your study that I have confidence in recommending um, to you. And so when you think about uh, verse 25, one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides in it. I remember a brother from the assembly I grew up at telling me he struggled as he put together messages to find good content online. And I thought, wow, I struggle to sort of pare down what I find. And so what I thought is maybe it's just a matter of knowing where to look. Uh, I could give you three or four other sites, and before you know it, you'd have too much to, to, to work through when you're preparing. So if you want even more, you can come to me after and say, well, give me three more sites, and I'll just I'll give you more. And that's, that's non-printed material. Uh, you could add to that your you know, good, good old William McDonald Bible Commentary, W.E. Vine's Dictionary of Expository Words. I mean, you, you, you put together four or five of those, and you're, you're set. Okay, I've made that point. <laughs> So let's get on uh, with our, our five points of, of self-deception. Uh, we did two of them this morning. Let's look at the third one. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 26. James chapter 1, verse number 26. Here's a third way that we don't want to be deceived as believers. We read here, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue. And here's the word, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Okay, so what does worthwhile religion look like? If I can continue using that noun. Pure 
An undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I think of um, the qualifications of elders when I think of this, right? Part of the, the, the list of the qualifications of elders basically presents to you the challenge that we don't want a person who's shepherding assembly that has a glaring, gaping moral inconsistency in their life. And you see this here. Um, I put, I, I told you this morning, I was trying to come up with sort of fun little titles. And so the third one here is, real faith is not like clothing that comes back from the cleaners with huge stains. See, I don't understand why you said that. Well, um, look down at verse at number 27. We actually read the word, and to keep oneself unstained or unspotted from the world. So I can ask you this evening, if I was to look at your life, and you were to look at your life, is there an area in your life where there's just basically a massive stain on your life, on your pursuit of Christ? Right? What would that be? Would that, would, would that be something that would be, that would be noted? Um, I, I can think of people, and, and, and I hope this doesn't apply to myself, and this is why we need the body, where, where there are sort of major issues with people's lives. And I, I assume they know it, and they want others to sort of just sort of go along with it or give them a free pass or something like that. And you just wonder why, why is that still there? And it could be all kinds of things. It could be pride. It could be anger. It could be arrogance. It could be um, dishonesty. It could be all, any, kind, any, any number of things. You might want to look at the, the, the phrase here, religion. You, we, don't, we tend to say things like um, you know, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. How many of you have heard that? That's, that's sort of true. We're, we're, we're basically making the emphasis that, that the essence of Christianity is based in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think what James is doing here is he's using a term from his world where religion, the word religion, sort of got at this cultural idea of people engaging in outward practices. You know, in the New Testament world, there were temples, and there were all kinds of external things that people could do that were religious. And so if a person claims to be religious, James is sort of putting before your eyes the idea of this outward performance of religion. So here we have a person that's sort of living the good life, right? They're, 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 they're sort of living a religious lifestyle outwardly. And James says, listen, there's more to the Christian life, there's more to true faith than an outward participation. And to try to sort of translate that into our world, you might have someone who's coming to all the meetings, participating in the Lord's Supper, teaching Sunday school, they're, they're sort of doing all the things, they're up at camp, doing all the things that one might do. And James comes along and, and, and says, are, are you deceiving yourself because when God looks at your life, if you don't bridle your own tongue, you basically got a big hole in your boat. Now, what is it with the tongue? James is going to talk about the tongue later. The scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I would suggest to you that an unbridled tongue is really an unbridled heart. That's an interesting thought. Now we're getting down to something. 
right? You have an unbridled and angry, uh, uh, an uncontrolled heart. At the core of your person is something that is out of control. I'm reminded of the Pharisees who were outwardly like whitewashed tombs. They were sort of white and painted, but inside, what, what were there, Jesus says? There's dead men's bones. We don't want to be like that. And the challenge is it's so easy to hear these words, to, to, um, to talk about them, to go over them yourself in a Bible study, and for it to be true about you. So just stop, take 10 seconds. I know I'm not going to sort of give you 10 minutes of silence. And just it, ask yourself, is there something in my life where I'm engaged in all of this external activity, but I have something significantly staining my own personal life? Is it the tongue? Is it the heart? Is it what I'm looking at? Is it the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my husband? Is it arrogance? Is it the, the thought that I'm in a special class? I mean, what, what is it? You don't want to be deceived, James says. You don't want the Lord to look at your life and at the end to say, this was pretty much worthless to me. Do you remember how the Lord's desire in the Old Testament was for holiness when you approach the temple? And God's, God is a great communicator. He's setting up all those pictures to tell you something about himself. He's like, listen, we can't, if I can use the simple phrase, we can't do business. We can't interact if there's not holiness here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about building on the foundation, and I really think the context is in the assembly, but building on the foundation, you know, you know it, there's six materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. This might be one way where you could build with wood, hay, or stubble, or you could be disqualified, Paul talks about. We don't want that to happen. Um, let me suggest a couple things here about... Um, Here's, here's maybe four categories of sort of religious life. There seems to be here, there's outward deeds. That's, that's part of it, right? We want to have a religious life that engages in some sort of outward deeds. <laughs> we're meeting together. We're, we're sharing life together. There's inward character. That's sort of a second sphere. Um, and then there's what we get to here in verse number 27. Real, genuine, undefiled religion in the sight of the Lord is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So let me ask you this, this evening. If you were to look at your life as a believer, would it be characterized primarily by outward activities that other people see? Would it be characterized by that and inner holiness? Would it be characterized by a third thing that James adds here? Outward activity, inner holiness, and these real, genuine works of love and mercy. Do you see how he points at that? That's interesting. James doesn't say genuine religion is to serve the Lord and not have an unbridled tongue. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say an unbridled tongue pollutes any attempts to follow the Lord or something like that. It's an unbridled tongue, and so as long as you bridle your tongue, you're good to go. He doesn't say that. He says real, genuine religion has to do with visiting orphans and widows in their distress. What, what, what's up with widows and orphans? Uh, background studies in, in the scripture are helpful here. You might think of widows in our society and just think of someone who's not married, and you say, oh, okay. You know, or maybe someone who is a little bit older and is, is alone. 
But in the ancient world, the classical world, the ancient Near Eastern world, when a person was widowed, they went into a category that was one of um, sort of, it was a real powerless category. It was a category where um, they often couldn't meet their own needs. They didn't have anybody to necessarily rely on. It wasn't a safe category to be in. And so what James is doing is he's pointing to two social categories that are inherently weak. Orphans in the ancient world were, were not treated at all. The ancient world's concept of childhood is not at all like a Western American concept of childhood. And you have to realize that even ideas like, like a teenager, that, that didn't even exist. Uh, if you go back far enough, it, that might have only existed in the last hundred years. But in the ancient world, children were, you might almost think of them like pets. Um, they, they just didn't have inherent value. Number one, the, the, the infant mortality rate was part of that. Uh, and so when you had someone who was an orphan, there was no social net for these people. Uh, in some cultures, if a child was born deformed, just let them die. I mean, just put them out on rocks and let them die. If somebody was impoverished, well, it's tough. Um, you know, it's the, the will of the gods or something. And it was often the early Christian communities that started to build the first orphanages. Right, because of their inherent value of human life. And this made them stand out in their world. It's an interesting thing to look at, um, the care of orphans and the, the, the construction of hospitals in Christian history. And so James has picked two categories here of people that are, that are powerless in society and says these are people that need mercy. Do you spend time visiting and showing mercy on people that need it? Or do you just sort of go by mercilessly in your life? And he'll bring this up again in the next passage. And so let's not be deceived about our own walk with the Lord, A, and that we've sort of engaged in external deeds, but we've got gaping stains in our own lives that need to be tended to, and that we're neglecting things that the Lord wants us to do. How are you actually engaging in good works? God wants the people who are zealous for good works. What are you doing to show the love of God to people around you? It's a simple thing. Oftentimes, um, I've been, I've been, I just want to say that oftentimes our kindness and our love to people is really what gets people thinking about the gospel. Uh, not, not just your ability to sort of engage intellectually with them. Uh, so it's a, it's a very practical thing as well. Look at chapter 2 here. Uh, let's do number 4 and 5 here. Here's a deception, number 4 and 5. Number 4 is real faith doesn't let our thoughts of other members of the body of Christ become hijacked by society standards. That's kind of long. Real faith doesn't let our thoughts of other members of the body of Christ become hijacked by society's standards. Chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This might be a little harder to apply because in the Western world, in America, we have a, a, a sort of a deep-seated and older value of equality. Um, they, we're not there by any stretch of the imaginations completely, but 
um, sort of going back to the founding of the nation, there was, people started to make these statements about the inherent equality of people created by God with inalienable rights, that there was a certain level of social equality. Clearly that wasn't worked out and wasn't lived out, but it's there in a certain way. And so in our society, we don't see some of the blatant social inequalities. We see them, but not in the way that you'll see them in other countries. Um, and you don't see them in Christian churches as much. They're there, but not as much. So it might take a little more work to, to sort of appreciate this. Um, he gives an example from his world. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothing, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. Now, the challenge is like we don't have any, there's, there, see, there's not even any good seats, right? So there's a little bit of a disconnect as you try to read, but you have to stop and think, what, what would it look like for us to treat somebody with sort of a special care and appreciation and not do that for someone else. You sit here in this good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my footstool. Here's the problem, James says. You just did something that you weren't qualified to do. Here's the deception. You're not qualified to make the call you just made. And what's the call? Verse number four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives or judges of evil motives? There were a number of ways that this could happen in the, in the ancient world. And you, you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ told the parable of the rich not being able to go through, they're like a camel. Um, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than a camel to, to enter the eye of a needle, go through the eye of a needle. And what, what was the response of the disciples? <laughs> Who could be saved? And as American, you're reading, you're saying, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't get it. Well, in their mind, as I understand it, God had blessed the wealthy. Right? If you're wealthy, you're blessed of God. If you're not wealthy, no, no, no. What did you do? I mean, you, remember, you remember Job's story? Uh, all of his friends were basically saying, Job, your life's not going well. You must have sinned. It's pretty simple, Job. Start confessing. And then they spend the rest of the time talking, you know? But that's not the way God's world operated at this time. Now, there were certain national covenantal agreements with the nation of Israel by God. If they kept the covenant, they would be blessed. If they didn't keep the covenant, they would be punished. But we're talking about individuals here. And so in their society, some people thought, well, if a, if a person's wealthy, they must be righteous. James says you actually can't make that call. That could be one way this could be going wrong. Another way could just be giving a person special treatment because they were of, of authority. Um, notice what it says here. If a person comes in with a gold ring, uh, one of the commentaries I looked and suggested that a gold ring was an emblem of um, the, the Roman equestrian social class. Um, and you've got to watch it when you study when you look into Roman history, because Roman history, is, there's, there's a long period of time there. And so there's sort of different periods in Roman history. So at this time in, in Roman history, uh, there might have been about 10,000 or less people who were sort of qualified to be equestrians. We, you, you know the word equestrian. You know, we, we're talking about horses, like an equestrian center. It, it comes from the Latin word equis, which means a horse. And so these were people who were sort of like knights, 
Um, they, they, they had military statuses. Of course, they would have horses and things like that. Um, they had to have, at this time, I think something like uh, a wealth around 100,000 denarii. Their, their wealth would be equal to something like 450 legionnaires a year. So these people had cash. They had land. They had power. Some of them had nobility status. And so this is, this is a rare person. In the Roman Empire, with millions of people, if there were something like less than 10,000 of people that would have fit into this equestrian class, this is a pretty significant person that walks into your little, your little Jewish Christian assembly. So, you know, people would notice. You know, they would notice who walked in. I mean, you, know, you just can't go to Walmart in Paul's day, Paul's day and, 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 and buy nice clothes that, that are, you know, affordable. You can't do that. It would be pretty obvious who was wealthy and who wasn't wealthy. It was much harder to hide. And here comes somebody with, per, you know, with, with fancy clothing, with a gold ring, and you know this person has power. It's palpable. They have authority, they have status. Come on, I see. Move. Your family needs to sit over there. You know? well, I mean, and, and people start shuffling. Um, And then the guy comes in in dirty clothes. I don't know who has running water or not in the communities that Paul's right, that uh, James is writing to. You could, you know, you could smell them. Um, you sit over here. Look, just stand in the back. Sit in the back room. James says, apparently, what the what the assemblies were doing was going beyond simply. Uh, they, they they weren't being sort of polite here. They were making judgments about these people's worth, or worse, their walk with God. We need to stop and ask ourselves, let's, let's not be too quick to assume we don't do that. How do we do that? Where do we do that? Um, I don't have a lot of stories or examples of that. Maybe it's because I'm not paying attention enough. Um, but one of them that might be close is um, a story that my dad told me about one of the brothers that he, he planted a church with. Uh, my dad started an assembly in the early 80s in a, uh, a new developing area of North Tampa. And there were a number of families that started it. But over the years, there, there wound up being two main elders at the assembly, uh, my dad and a Jamaican brother. And the, 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 the assembly that, I realize I'm speaking in public here, uh, and this is a little more personal, um, but we're on the other side of the country. Uh, so I'm speaking about something personal here, so um, be careful what you do with these words. Um, the, the assembly that we came from, um, here was a, a Jamaican brother who'd come down from Canada and my dad suggested that one of the reasons why he wanted to start a new assembly was the way people of color were referred to by some of the leadership and some of the men in the assembly back in the, this been back in the 70s. Um, that, that grieved him. And here was a body of believers and, and they were talking like this. A second thing was here was this man who had a lot of experience um, with child evangelism fellowship in Jamaica, uh, radio experience, and he came and he just sat. He sat in the back row, and he didn't get used, right? He was a gifted brother. He's a man of faith, a man who preached the gospel. I remember growing up listening to him preach the gospel. 
Um, and and he, he was sort of ignored. So that's not like, it, it's not sort of saying to a person based on uh, the, you know, their, their clothing, but it's based on the color of their skin, right? One way that we can show favoritism is just by ignoring somebody, right? By, by maybe this person's not from, a lot of assemblies have core families that have started the assembly, worked in the assembly. Maybe they're not in the core family. Right? We gotta be careful how we treat humans because the God of the universe came down and didn't act like that with us. He took us who were filthy, who were failures, who were nobodies, who had no claims to anybody. We weren't his friends. We didn't belong to his family. We were enemies. And, and what does the Lord say? I forgive you. Come sit at my table. Come be part of my family. Come into my house. I'm patient with you. We mess things up. We fail. I'm not eloquent. You're not eloquent. We just... We don't have anything, so to speak, to offer God. And he comes and says, join my team. Let's work together. That's just pure grace and mercy. We can't turn around and, and, and worship the Lord on Sunday and say, we, 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 we value the Lord's mercy. We value the Lord's grace and his kindness and his, the way he was willing to stoop down and then not do that ourselves. This isn't what James is talking about here, but a good example is reconciliation. Totally unrelated to what James is talking about here, but... Just to make another illustration, we can't, we can't say, Lord, thank you for reconciling me to yourself, a righteous and holy God, and then sing hymns about that and praise the Lord for that, and then we won't be reconciled with other people. Right? What does the Lord Jesus say? He says, wait a minute, time out. Leave your gift at the altar, right? an Old Testament illustration of worship. Just stop what you're doing. Just stop, go be reconciled, and then come back and finish up. Because I don't want you here praising me for being a reconciling God, and you're not going to do that because that just empties everything out that you're saying. That's the kind of thing James is talking about. You have an outward form of religion, but there's a gaping stain. And God says, it's useless. It's not real. Don't be deceived, right? It's not real. We want to be people characterized by real faith, real belief. Do you really believe God is there? Because if you do, Everything will change. And it's an amazing thing in your life to hit some point when you're 13 or 35 or 65 or I don't know what, when you realize, I've been saying things, I've been singing things, but do I actually believe that at the vast reaches of the interstellar, you know, I like to say the Hubble deep space fields, right? Go look up the Hubble deep space fields. There's a God there. That, 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 that there is an awesome being who knows the spin of all the subatomic particles and who has invented physics and who has invented language in the human mind and who can move the vast reaches of the solar system like you can move your fingers, has access to all points in space and time without a body. You realize that God doesn't move around, right? There's no body. He has access to the entire universe. That being is really there. Do you really believe that? Because that's what you claim? And then that God came down and took a body on himself and walked on earth and people touched him and insulted him and loved him and interacted with him. And that God went and died. That's a profoundly phenomenal claim. Do I believe that? Because if I do, everything changes. Everything. One way that I think, I was trying to give a couple examples of how being a respecter of persons, the way the King James put it, this, this could occur is, uh, I'll, I'll call it the CEO mentality, 
This isn't something the assembly does. This is something individuals kind of expect. Um, I've met a couple people, not like 25, but you know, a few of them, I think I see this, maybe I'm making too much out of a few people's behaviors, where because they were doctors or bosses, they sort of expected to kind of just be listened to, right? Or they had wealth. Why? Because that's what they're used to all week long. And so they come into the Lord's, you know, I don't say the Lord's house because it's not the Lord's house. Um, but they come into the community of believers, the assembly, and they just assume that's going to happen there too. And the amazing thing is that some people play along, right? This person's wealthy, this person's significant, and, and they sort of let this person make a lot of decisions. But that's not the standards for decision-making or for leadership in the body of Christ. Right? There's qualifications for leaders and shepherds, and money's not one of them, Right? Status in the business is not one of them. Being a politician or being, and it's amazing how people are able to translate their secular political status into the body of Christ. That doesn't make any sense. Why? Because the God of the universe became a nobody. He wasn't beautiful. This is another way we can do this. We can sort of just, we can really appreciate beautiful people more. That's an American thing, right? You look good, you have nice clothes, uh, you're eloquent. and, and you just sort of people gravitate to you, right? What about, what about the unlovely? Isaiah seems to indicate that Jesus was not a lovely person by outward appearances, right? There was no beauty or form that we would desire in him. There's a lot more that could be said here. Uh, just a couple, couple quick points. Look at verse number six. Verse number four, you have made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? We already already crossed that one this morning, the reward for those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. You ever think of that? You ever think of dishonoring the poor? You might have even thought that's possible. You, especially in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you can only dishonor people that have power and honor. This might be a very new social concept. I, I've never looked that up if this was an unheard of concept in society that one could dishonor poor people. Um, I told you I wanted to speak on the atonement. One of the views of, of salvation and the atonement that, that became prominent after a thousand years in Christian history was the idea that, that God's honor had been... Um, Freedom of the verb, you know, stained or assaulted by human sin, and that because it was, it was during sort of a feud, the feudal era, about you know, medieval ages, a thousand um, A.D. or so, uh, with Anselm, and that that someone needed to restore God's honor. Uh, so so, and Christ came and did that because we couldn't do that as humans. It was one way that they looked at the cross. But to dishonor the poor is an interesting concept. You've dishonored the poor. Have you been dishonoring somebody by the way that you treat them? What do you do when people come in? How how do you treat visitors? Um, Be careful. Last one. Um, We'll make a few points from a passage that people write books about. Uh, This is the last one. Real faith can be seen and not just heard. Okay? We don't want to be deceiving ourselves. 
by thinking that because we talk about faith, we have genuine faith. Just, just read with me from verse number 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Now, this is a powerful passage that people disagree over. It has to do with James and works and justification by works and justification by faith in Paul. Are we going to do that in five minutes? Are you going to go there? Let's go there. Five minutes. <laughs> what, if it, what I want to do is I'm just going to emphasize certain words here, okay? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? I'm going to suggest that you underline the word says. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith, the translators in some of your English Bibles, like the NIV, like the NSB, are bringing out the article that's in front of the word faith. It's not just, can faith save him? It's actually, can the faith, can that faith, can that kind of faith save him? What kind of faith? Say-so faith, talking faith, claims to have faith. The world is full of people claiming to be religious and claiming to have faith. James' basic point here is like, listen, if you just talk about, if you claim to have faith, and that doesn't show up in your life anywhere, doesn't come out in your life anywhere, it may just be an empty claim. Mere talking faith can't save you. You know why? Because it's not actual faith. Because if you actually believe Jesus Christ is a historical figure, died on the cross, rose again, you will live differently. If you believe that there was going to be a major economic failure, and I mean, I'm not a financial guy. I'm just going to make this up. Some major economic failure in the markets tomorrow, and you were a financial person, and you didn't do anything with your investments, and you didn't do anything with your stocks, I would not believe that you actually believe there was going to be some sort of failure. If you actually, I mean, I grew up in Florida where there were hurricanes, and the closer the hurricane got, I mean, people started to run on the grocery stores, buying toilet paper, buying plywood. Why? Because they really believed something was going to go down, possibly. Like, this could be the big one. It could hit, and they slowed down by the time they got on the landfall, you know, landfall. But, right, belief produces action. So James is just saying, look, if there's inaction in your life, I, 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 I can't be convinced that there's real belief there. Um, to make this helpful, and I haven't really read enough verses to talk this much without reading scripture, but you could use ideas like patriotism. I've probably said this here before. If you claim to be patriotic and you hate fireworks and you don't like Fourth of July and you don't want to vote and you really don't like the American flag and you, you don't like anything about America, but you're patriotic, people are going to say, I don't understand Let's make it more personal. If I say I love my wife, I can't show you my love. I don't have, like, the love card. And I can't pull that out of my wallet. See, this is genuine love for my wife. She gave it to me and signed it. Right? I, oh, my claims to love my wife can really only be seen by what? My actions. It's a very simple point. Let's just read a couple other things here from James chapter uh, 2. James gives you an example of what this kind of thing looks like. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, God bless you. It's good to see you. Man, I hope the Lord takes care of you. Let me just pray for you right now. And you, you know they need it. You've got something to do. You know, you've got a way to give, give to them. And you don't give them. What's necessary for their body? What use is that? Says James. And then he, then he brings it home. Even so, in the same way, I don't know why I'm going like this. In the same way, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
What's James' point is, you're just talking, man. You're not actually doing anything. There's not actually evidence that you really believe this. And then he gets in a little dialogue, which is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret because of the way the Greek is. Basically, the idea is someone is saying, you know, you've got faith, I've got works. And James comes in and says, listen, um, verse number, I will show you my faith by my works. James says, look, you believe that God is one. See, here's a person that's talking about the religion. I believe in the one God, Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, our Lord is one Lord. Yeah, that's great. Guess what? The demons believe that too. What makes you different than the demons? Now, there's a question. How is my life different than the demons? They believe in God. I believe in God. They believe Jesus historically died on the cross, right? They would have known that. They were there participating. I believe that too. Where's the difference? That's a pretty profound question when you, ask, when, you, when, you, when you think about it. Are you willing to re- recognize, oh, foolish fellow? And here's where I get our point of deception from you. Foolish fellow, fools are deceived. That faith without works is useless. Let me say something about Abraham and, and justification by works versus faith. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that the man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you go, wait a minute. I just read Romans chapter 5, or Romans chapter 4. And it says we're justified by faith alone and not by works. There's a contradiction. Christianity is not true. Let's go home. So you meet people that act, <laughs> act like that. Here's a little help in, in my thought, and you might have another way of working through this. Romans chapter 4 points your attention to when in Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 15. Earlier in his life, God takes him outside, look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be as the stars, the sand on the sea. And it says Abraham believed God then and there, and God counted it to him as righteousness. What does James talk about right here? Later in his life, chapter 22. Later on down the story, God asks him to sacrifice the one thing he was holding all of his, hanging all his hopes on. Isaac, the promised seed. God had promised him everything was going to happen to Isaac. Abraham, do you really believe that I'm going to fulfill these promises? Sure, Lord, I believe it. Give up your son. Do you really, really, really believe? Give up your son. And you know what he did? He did it. You know that Abraham believed God. Man didn't even know what resurrection was and started to think Hebrews tells us about something called resurrection. How do you know Rahab the harlot really believed that God was going to come through Jericho? She did something. She helped the spies out and put the the scarlet thread down. You know the woman believed. And so what James is saying here is he's saying, look, when you profess to be a believer, it's like a prophecy. It's like a claim that something's going to happen later in your life. He uses the word fulfilled. And it was fulfilled, namely what was said of him earlier, that he believed God. It's like when you say, I trust in Jesus Christ, my Savior, you're almost making a statement about what your future life will look like. My life, since I believe in God, is going to be characterized by, by, by belief, by making decisions with my money and my time and my marriage and my life based on the fact that God is there. It's going to change the way I live. It's going to look different. And then you go through life and none of that actually happens. James says, I don't know. Right? That kind of faith is just talk. And just talk is not belief. 
And if we don't actually believe, we're not saved. So it's just say-so faith is not actually real faith. I can't save. So let me stop. Let's pray. Let's not be deceived in these five areas. Father, what I've spoken about this morning and tonight is nothing new to anybody here, I assume. I know that some in the room here have led studies, have preached from James. Lord, we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be fakers. Lord, help us to be courageous and to confess our sin and to make the changes that we need to make to not just be hearers, but doers, to not blame you when trials come, to love everyone in the same way, Lord, not dishonoring the poor or those that are different from us, <clears throat> not to be people that just have a faith that's based on talk. Lord, give us the courage and the, the hunger for, 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 for to, to Lord, just, we just wanna please you in our lives. Give us that hunger a genuine love for the Lord that pushes us beyond these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time. Thank you. The Lord bless you.